Previously on Storyological. <laughs> Joanna Russ made me feel a thing. What is that thing and why did I feel it? Let's find out, as Bojack Horseman might say. <laughs> yeah, I missed that show. Oh, I know. When's it coming back? I don't know. I might just have to rewatch some Bojack. Okay, yeah. We could do like a, a best best of the three seasons. Yeah, we could make a drinking game out of it. Drink yourself to an early death? Yeah, just just <laughs> drink until it all seems hilarious. <laughs> I don't have to have anything for it to all seem hilarious. Um, this is Storylogical, a podcast about amazing stories. That we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerood. And I'm E.G. Kosh. So my pick this week is When It Changed by Joanna Russ, which won the 1972 Nebula. Okay, so we're not unearthing a, a completely ignored classic. No, okay. no. So this is a story of a planet colonized by humans where all the men died 600 years ago. And it's the particular story of Janet and Katie, two women who are married and their daughter Eureka, as they travel uh, through the night to reach reach the, the meeting house of, of their area because men have come. Men who haven't been present boom, boom, on the planet boom. for 600 years. And the story is... 600 years. Right. Yeah, I know. It's just, just emphasizing it silently out loud. It seems like a long time. Yeah. You know, they, they kind of build a civilization and are pretty self-sufficient. They're, as Joanna goes, is at pains to, to talk about. Like, this is a fragile point in their history. You know, they're, they're semi-industrialized, but they don't want to rush towards it. But yet they have knowledge of what they're heading towards because... Because clearly they came from a post-industrial, post-space exploration Earth, but then were struck by plague and pestilence. All the men died, and they kind of had to start from, from scratch, building their society. And so it's the story of how these two groups of people encounter each other and attempt to communicate with each other. The four men who have come from Earth, and the group of women who were there to talk to them. And... The thing that I love about it, the thing that made me pick it was really it's a story about how people are crappy at leaving their assumptions behind, right? They are so encumbered by their own cultural blinkers that they can't communicate with each other really initially and not just because of the slight language differences. They just can't see beyond their own assumptions of how their societies are correct. So the men come with their assumption that that men and women belong together and that men have this particular role and women mm -hmm. have their role. And the women also come with their assumptions that, thank you very much, we're doing just fine. You know, we have excelled beyond parthenogenesis. We are, we are blending over just fine without you. We don't need any fertilization. We're in this semi-industrial society. And what the hell do you think you're doing coming in here with all your assumptions? Um, yes. Wow. Okay. Uh, two things. First, uh, I just want I want to clarify. So when I read, you know, that depiction of the women coming in with their assumptions of the way things were supposed to work, both in the way it was delivered and the ending of the story, I read that our sympathies were meant to obviously be directed towards these women do know what they're doing and they are doing okay. Yeah. And the men's assumptions are wrong and the women's assumptions are right. I took I took less of a wrong and right from well, it. Yeah, but, I mean, to be fair. But yeah, fair. okay, in the context of the story, yes. Yeah, yeah, and the, because that, that line you said, the, um, 
that thing you said, people are crappy at leaving their assumptions behind. That was partly my beginning with the story. Uh, and so I first want to talk about locomotives. Let's let's sit down okay. and talk about locomotives. Um, so you know the thing on the front of locomotives? That, that little wedge, that V-shaped thing that sits on the front of a train? Okay, sure. It's called a cow catcher. Is it? Yes. Um, I don't think we have them in England. Maybe you didn't because, I don't know, you don't let your cows wander because you've got hedges. Yeah. I don't know. but Hedges the and whole, fences, we love them. The whole thing, right, is you have, you have this giant train, but people in the past have gone to the effort of designing this thing that you're supposed to put on the front of the locomotive, which is this sharp but kind of blunt instrument mm-hmm. whose job it is is to push objects such as cows out of the way and prevent major damage to the train behind it. I'm loving where this is going. So when I read this story, having you know recently marched in protest for the first time in my life, I was like, this story feels like a protest. It feels like, in the same way that that locomotive is designed, a lot of movements of social justice, especially at the, maybe a, an earlier time, granted that, as an academic would say, um, this is an always already thing. Social justice movements are ancient. It's not like they just started no. 50 years ago. But from our perspective, there is often a beginning of a movement where different factions of various colors or creed or, let's say, bisexuality are kind of aligned behind whatever the movement needs. They all gather around behind this sharp but blunt goal or platform. And that sharp goal or platform is meant to shove through patriarchy or whatever institution with Mm -hmm. the hope that it will keep everybody else safe and ultimately get to a place where there's more space Mm -hmm. for people to be individual and complex. Mm -hmm. But right now we're not interested in bisexual people because we're a little iffy about, you know, having bi's interfere with our homonormative world or... Homonormative or heteronormative? Homonormative, because the idea is there are gay people and there are lesbian people. And right, if, okay. If, yeah. if bisexuality comes to the forefront, that might muddle the message, uh, whatever we're sending. Right, I'm, so just as an example. I yeah, just yeah. as an example, I'm deliberately not going through all of the theory of what's going on here. They're, yeah. just, they're just things. And my particular Complexity favorite part of this... is not allowed in this... In this uh, as, you, as you line up behind the cow catcher... It yeah. does not allow for complexity. And That's nuance. true. I'm lining up this metaphor, yeah. barrel through. And <laughs> yeah. I, my favorite part of this metaphor is like the status quo, the institutions are cows <laughs> indifferently <laughs> wandering the world, <laughs> just in just ignoring chewing the cud of creation, just chewing cud, just eating their grass. Anyway, so this story reminded me of that because there was this a sense, like you said, uh, that, um, that, you know, the men have their assumptions and the women have their assumptions. I, when I read the story, it just felt like it was shouting to me gender dynamics of the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. Yeah. And a part of me thought, but the women left Earth 600 years ago. Why are they, why are they still consciously speaking in the same understanding of these gender dynamics? Mm-hmm. There was a line where Janet describes a feeling from the men of having money, uh, strength and money. Mm-hmm. for all of their lives and and her janet feeling second class and that was a feeling that it was weird because she would have described herself that way the other day which i took to mean full of strength and money it felt like a, a direct echo of a dialogue that would have been happening at the time yeah and 
so there was, you know, as opposed to the story we talked about last week, um, Joseph Allen Hill's story, which is also a kind of protest story. Not a kind of protest. It is a protest story. Um, there were moments in this story where I dropped out of a belief in the world. I dropped out of a belief that the the authorial persona was as interested in creating a real people and a real world as they were in communicating their message. Now, yeah. joyously, this gets complicated later in the story, but I'll put that to the side for a bit. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think that the way it articulated itself in my brain is like, oh, it feels a bit dated in, <laughs> in, in the way that it is examining gender roles or examining progressiveness or looking at, um, uh, yeah, at how society might evolve. There's a very uh, lovely introductory paragraph from Joanna Russ before the story that describes how feminism had hit the university that she worked at two or three years before. And there were arguments all across campus happening that were essentially direct reflections of this story. And you can kind of feel that, right? It's quite literal in the arguments that it's having about who is necessary, what is necessary in society, who is it, who gets to decide who plays what role. Um, and yet for all of that slightly datedness, it still charmed me with the way that with a more modern eye, I looked at it and saw, okay, not, not only this kind of straight up feminist of the 70s kind of perspective of how do we, how do we redefine gender roles, but actually what I took from it is Janet is a person who has power and money and status on, on her, in her society. And that is about to change. And she is scared. And I'm like, oh yeah, I mustn't forget, you know, all the, in all the ways I want society to be different, I mustn't forget to empathize with those people who are also having their um, worlds and expectations upended. I'm not going to say that that means I won't fight for change or argue with people about what right and wrong is, but it does remind me to be empathetic. Yeah, and that is one of the ways it's complicated because, yeah, it does lead you towards that that realization. And that, to me, was a bit itself complicated by the fact that it feels like the men are presented as the more powerful group because they have guns, because it's inevitable. And so, to me, that empathy is is there but muddled a bit by the fact that it's not as though the women have oppressed these men yeah, and now they're rising up and so and yet though that that same feeling fed to me another kind of of thing that charmed me at the end which there's a bit at the end where it's not that the perspective shifts out of janet but janet's own perspective shifts to where it's now clear she's remembering this time before it changed. And she's remembering walking around the house after the first meeting with the men. And she's thinking about her daughter and she's thinking about her wife and she's thinking about the world that they have built and the ancestor journals that she's been reading all her life that tell her of pain. The teller of the pain. And that yeah, that did two things for me. One I, I love the little nod to why she would have been speaking and thinking of gender dynamics from 600 years ago because mm-hmm. she's been reading all her life about this. And so it both filled in a little gap in the story for me, but also just, yeah, it gives you chills because it's so great. But, but also it gave me chills 
her thinking about what she was going to lose. That was a moment where she became real and it became poetic and a measure of sad grace that I loved. And because at the end, when the men talk about recolonizing, mm-hmm. you know, I, you know, like, again, it didn't, it didn't call to mind. I didn't empathize with Janet and then think about how men or another dominant group would feel. It, like a lot of the stories will do to us this year, readers, whether they're written in 1950 or 1970, it just made me think about now. It made me think of mm-hmm. the idea of how it feels to wander around your world and think that everything you've built and strived for will be taken away by a group of people who used to be in power, who used to be the dominant force, and are now coming back to your world saying, we're going to make this right again. Mm-hmm. We're going to put things back where they're supposed to be. I could, it just, I just yeah. saw the ships coming from Earth to this colony <laughs> and the banner that said, make Earth great again. And they were going to bring uh, these people back into the fold. And we're yeah, going to try, I presume, not to reference that every episode. But, but look, that's the reality of our, of our existence right now. Yeah. And to me, part of the purpose of reading and loving and examining stories is, is what can they tell us? about ourselves what can they tell us about our relationships what can they tell us about our culture and that great stories can be written across the ages and still inform us now of the reality of humanity and feelings and vengeance and reciprocity and support and community and all of that it will be a theme i think we come back to again and again the ways a story like this can make us feel less alone yeah. Because there's a sense that somebody is there with us in this hour of um, dread. Um, but at the same time, make us despair and maybe feel a little bit sad at the idea that these things just happen again and again. There yeah. was certainly... If the, one of the things that shifted in my mind at the end was the thought connecting it to the moment we're in now. Why do I think after 600 years, men would show up and say something different? I I think that's partly hope. I think it's partly just the way she happened to write the story. That man didn't seem very believable to me. He just mm. seemed like a mouthpiece for it. But mm. it's really not un, unbelievable to think that that would happen. Anyhow. True. All right. I picked. I accidentally picked a story this week, readers, by some kind of phenom. Some kind of phenom. I have never heard anybody use that part of that word in that way before. Really? Yeah. Oh, Shaven was a phenom. Not a phenomenon? No, 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 because a phenom means like a young person. I'm starting to write Alexandra Phemon, but <laughs> her name is Alexandra Kleeman. The name of that story that I picked this week is called Fairy Tale. It is by Alexandra Kleeman. It is in her collection, Intimations, which came out last year, and it was first published in the Paris Review in the winter of 2010. If you can believe such a time existed, which I presume you can because you're listening and you're probably aware of calendars and stuff. And I think time. all of our listeners probably were alive in 2010. Probably. I'm going to make that back. Unless, yeah, they might not be the listening. same people that they were then now. But oh, Yeah, I hope not. It's always exciting to, to shed your skin and become someone new. Yes. As the, the more literal, the better, readers. The more literal, the better. Fairy tale is a story that did not exactly remind me at all of Kelly Link, but I'm going to begin there, which is that I feel like writers such as Kelly Link 
tend to write stories where real life begins to seem as if it's kind of a dream, that, that things happen in a way that feels slightly out of kilter with reality, and yet it never really feels like things aren't real. Yeah. This story, Fairy Tale by Alexander Kleeman, uh, which is about a woman who, let's say, wakes up one day to find herself at a dinner table. Who wakes up one day to find herself sitting at a long table with a lot of nice things on it mm-hmm. and comes to find a lot of men gradually entering into her home who she doesn't exactly recognize but who announce themselves as her fiance or boyfriend or former boyfriend or paramour or lover. As I read it, these little details started to accumulate. The fact that, you know, the first person that is there at the table that isn't her mother or father, she can't really see them very well. Mm -hmm. She doesn't know who they are. She describes him like this. She says, his eyes were like two little identical stones, the bare minimum of a face. (laughs) Details like that accumulate, and there's a moment where she goes into the kitchen, and then there's a door to her bedroom, and then the lock on that bedroom door won't work, and she's trying to be safe from these men that are coming to get her. Where I realized this is a story where it's not written such that real life begins to seem like a dream. It's written as though it's a dream, but delivered as though it's real. Mm -hmm. And the power of the story, the power of the story of this woman that becomes surrounded by all these men she doesn't really know and who feel things at her and who ultimately both want to love and kill her is that me as a reader feel like I am trapped in someone else's nightmare. Yeah. I'm in such admiration of the way that she makes this dream... uh, that she paints this dream so vividly. So I think that something I I see in stories relatively often is someone has a dream and it's described and it feels kind of opaque. And we it feels like things are murky, we can't quite see what's happening and it's kind of frustrating. What does it mean? Whereas here, what we have is absolute clarity through the narrator's eyes she can see everything that's happening but she has no idea what it means and we have access to her thoughts so that we see she has no idea what it means so we don't feel lost right we're there with her in her confusion and her fear and her inability to understand anything that's happening but we don't get frustrated which is what happens in uh, oftentimes in those other kinds of stories that that i talked about so just on a technical level amazing and then all of those i love the way you described it those details accumulate and they do they sort of accrete around her as she moves as she interacts with her parents and with the initially one man who's in the in the dining room with them and all of the objects on the table and as she kind of desperately tries to make sense of it and to grasp for any kind of pattern or sense that she can so she's looking at this table and it's full of things and they're nice things and she she sort of feels like they might be hers but she doesn't really want to take responsibility for them and she's trying to understand what they are and eventually the only thing she can say about them is many of them were round many of these objects were round and to me that was a funny b terribly sad because it really brought home her confusion. And C really spoke to this terrible habit we have as humans of, mm, I was going to say leaping to conclusions, but that's not it. But, but assuming that because we can't see 
uh, a pattern or reality that that only what we can see on the surface is reality um so you know it's what leads us to make judgments about people based on the way that they look say because we don't see what's underneath and that is a lot of layers to pack into what is i think just the opening page of this story there is a spectacular sense that this character is awake within their dream fully Mm -hmm. and we are too and here's the thing uh a lot of stories that purport to be scary or perhaps are scary are meant to be scary because you're afraid the character will die or that something bad will happen to them i'm going to put forth for your consideration an idea that often what terrifies us in dreams and in life is not so much a feeling literally someone's going to kill us Though eventually that is scary, and it's also kind of scary in this story. Mm -hmm. But a feeling that we have no idea what's happening. And everyone around us seems to know what's happening, but they are unable or unwilling to communicate (laughs) to us what is happening. So we feel very confused and powerless because we don't understand. lack of control, I think, is such a critical part of that fear. As humans, we tend to feel control from a sense of an understanding of a situation. And so... The the character's confusion over who these people are and why they're here and what they want from her, coupled with that sense of no control that is viscerally kind of deployed in the fact that doors don't work the way they're supposed to work. And there's a spectacular, almost, I felt like a Lynchian, terrifying scene where she has gone into the bedroom with one man, scared of another man, and she can't get the door to lock. The lock won't work. That makes it it's already terrifying because she's so confused and we're there so present with her and her confusion that when it approaches actual like horror movie scary to me is it's a whole different level of terror because Mm -hmm. what makes it scary is the world isn't working the way it's supposed to yeah and in fact that that scene then goes into the into this hijinks (laughs) farce (laughs) No, that's, it goes into this incredibly disorienting description of how instead of stabbing her with a knife that he had, he's attempting to stab her with towels mm-hmm. and clean laundry and a feather duster. And that's hilarious. It, it is hilarious and also deeply, deeply disturbing. Yeah. It's the... and, it, and it helped me unlock the other aspect of this story that I found so fascinating, like... Part of the fear of this story comes from this domestic setting that it's in, right? Her parents are at the table and at one point, instead of talking to her fiancé about whatever pain it is he seems to be feeling, that's this sort of trying to escape his throat in this rising gurgle, instead of acknowledging it and, and talking about it, her mom turns on the washing machine or is it the dishwasher and... And so, you know, thankfully, the churn of that overwhelms any gurgling sound. And I just thought, oh, go ahead. Yeah, read it. It says, the gurgling escalated, but my mother politely switched on the dishwasher. And soon we heard mostly the sound of machinery rather than that of a person's feelings surfacing. And I felt at that point the visceral reality of this woman having been told all her life that she was not allowed to express emotion having had role modeled by her parents the 
how inappropriate it was to do anything that might cause anybody else to feel an emotion even, let alone express or talk about them themselves. And how it seems to have led the protagonist to this place where she cannot really empathize with the people around her. And that's kind of what I got from the fact that she can't really recognize people, doesn't understand why they're there. Her, the way she has suppressed emotions inside of herself has kind of blunted her ability to see them in others or to understand intent in others. And that is part of why she is so confused and so dislocated from these other people that surround her. And that that all kind of like wraps into this domestic setting and how it's the source of, you know, presumably her nurture, but also the source of her torture and the place of her death. Um, yes. Yeah, some of that I didn't read is like she grew up in a place where her emotions were repressed any more than like a in in the in the in the feminist reading of the story that aspects of herself are not allowed to express within the institutions. It is the brilliance of making your dream real as a writer slash human is that the the person's interpretation will tell it you all you need to know about the person. Ways. Yeah, exactly. And is speaks to something I'm very interested in the moment. Uh, as we do, we don't talk about really the stories that we're going to pick until we pick them. And we don't generally plan to talk about things together. And it just happened that we picked two stories that are, I think you could fairly read Joanna Russ's story as a piece of feminist writing. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. And I think you could probably read this story with its domestic setting and its gazillions of men trying to force their will and feelings on this woman in yeah. a, a as a feminist piece of fiction as well or at least those lenses would be very useful for both of them and it's it's interesting to me the the ways in which these stories work at similar issues but with quite different tools mm-hmm. because this story is both more obscure and m- literally dreamlike Mm-hmm. Than Joanna Russ's story, which is purely realist, even though it's six hundred years in the future, um, we all we know what's going on. The characters all know what's going on, and yet this story um, felt far more real and and visceral and present. And yeah. because it was slightly obscured, it felt like its message, while it could be missed by people, it also felt like it could be picked up in many different complex ways that would stab you in whatever your weakest spot was. Yeah. and I, <laughs> With with a feather duster. <laughs> the feather stab duster. it, stab you. Uh, Dust your heart out. There's that, that one paragraph where she talks about how men are the measure of the world. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the structural similarity of men and their ability to be represented both as ideal like Leonardo's Vitruvian man, and as average, man being the measure of all things, and therefore a sort of standard, an interchangeable unit of length, breadth, intelligence, emotion. We could lay them end to end to measure the distance between continents, the distance to the moon. We could use them to calculate the weight of the weather, or to buy things at the grocery store. With such an abundance of men, we could gauge anything we choose. And... Yeah, I, that just destroyed me, that paragraph, because it paints this picture of a place, of a world where women are literally worth nothing. They mm-hmm. do not, they represent nothing. Yeah, yeah. They can be exchanged for nothing. Yeah, they uh, literally don't measure up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that kind of paragraph is a, um, 
is particularly indicative of some of what she pulls off in the story that is amazing, which is that paragraph feels rooted in our reality. But within the, the reality of the story, within the dream, it comes across as this bolt of, of clarity and understanding that shakes us even more from the sense that it is a moment of cohesion and what is otherwise an incoherent world. And mm-hmm. that's part of what I loved about the story is that in the characters kind of questing to understand, even asking in that kind of way you do in a dream where you're like, wait, who am I? How did I get here? Kind of like a David Byrne song. Um, and you uh, may ask yourself. Yeah. I love how the reality of the story feels certain and in a way without precedent. Uh, almost as if its entire universe had been created five minutes ago. <laughs> um, it has just sprung into being and you've been dropped into it. And that is both an incredibly accurate rendering of how dreams feel and yet also from a feminist perspective, from a human perspective, incredibly accurate of how it feels to not just be born into the world, but at whatever point you awake to the fact that there are all these systems that exist around you and seem to have just always been there, and yet you can't really figure out how they got there. Right. Yeah, you just know that somehow they don't include you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good final word. Thanks for listening, readers. This has been Storylogical, that one podcast that talks about stories. We probably did not talk about all the stories that exist in any of the worlds. (laughs) And we certainly didn't say everything... Um, about even these two stories so if you want to share your opinions with us or let us know about some amazing stories that you found you can hit us up on twitter we are at storyological which is story like the word oh like the letter and logical like aristotle uh you can follow emma on twitter she is at eg kosh and you can follow chris on twitter he is at kuvols If you are on Facebook and you want to join us and like us and send us your reactions, uh, you can do all of that at facebook.com slash storyological. And if you have enjoyed this podcast, and we hope you have, please head over to iTunes and leave us a many-starred review. It helps people find us, and we love it when that happens. And if you are eligible to vote in the Hugos, consider nominating us for Best Fan Cast. I believe the deadline uh, is coming up in the middle of March. I, for show notes, links to past episodes, gifts of an appropriate and inappropriate nature, as well as now articles occasionally, including one where we've listed all of the Hugo-eligible works that we discussed last year that you could vote for this year, you can always find us at our home on the web. Storyological.com. Thanks for listening. Happy reading. There was upon the fields of Yestermore <laughs> a group of women trundling from the wilderness, carrying with them more women. And on the shoulders of those women were yet more women, and nowhere could there be seen the front tail of man. <laughs> Oh yeah. Otherwise known (laughs) as the penis.
we learned that the today that the word penis comes from the Latin word for tail. Amazing. You know what else we did recently that somehow feels relevant to to this story? <laughs> Barbarella. Oh, did you say we did? Yeah, did we, saw we, did. Barca, we saw Barbarella. Oh, okay. I mean, your construction was we did Barbarella. Yeah, yeah, that but would we, be... just, we just saw Barbarella and yeah. Jane Fonda in all of her um, glory on her sleeping on her see-through bed. Yes, a lot of fur as well. Just a, a great, lot of fur. A great deal of fur. And she must have spent a lot of time hoovering. Huh? Hoovering? Vacuuming. Yeah, well, I mean, either way, I think what you've forgotten mm. is that fur actually is self-cleaning. <laughs> Doesn't yes. it have to actually like with be on a live animal? Like a cat. Um, rather than, or was her spaceship alive? Well, I don't know. that's true. It's probably not actually self-cleaning. It, you know, Barbarella has to Push crawl around. <laughs> oh, yeah. And make it clean. <laughs> oh, it's, uh, it's, it's sexy because it's sexy. 